Our focus today is a woman and her friends who opened American minds and palates towards one of the world's oldest and greatest cuisines, and in the process, ushered in an era of nouvelle cuisine marked with fresh ingredients, bold flavors, and careful technique. She's not the first celebrity chef, but she is a household name synonymous with good food and a bon appetit. Join us as we discover the amazing world and influence of Julia Child and her seminal book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. We're having that moment in, in the year where you know spring's here, but it's being a little reluctant to really show itself, and I'm waiting for some sunshine. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We are experiencing the same, although we have had some absolutely stunning, gorgeous days. Today was another one of those gorgeous days. So, But I am very excited for spring. The geese are back. The birds are chirping in the morning. So all of the signs are here. Any day now, son. Just feel free. Any, we're ready. We're ready. We're waiting for you. Bring it on. We're happy to have you. I'm really excited to talk to you today. You know, it's uh, April and we're heading into a new cookbook, a new territory. And this one is one that we are both hold very dear to our heart. It's uh, been made very famous and very popular by one of the finest women and chefs in the world. And that is Miss Julia Child. Can I tell you a little bit about her and this book? Oh, please do. I am so excited to hear all about her. She is absolutely one of my heroines. Yes, please. Now, I know we both know a lot about Julia, but I wanted to give a little bit of summary for folks who may not be so familiar with her. But how do you summarize a life like Julia's? Julia was born in 1912 to a wealthy family in Pasadena, California. Her father, John McWilliams Jr., was a successful businessman, and her mother, Julia Carolyn Weston, was a socialite and a homemaker. And as a child, Julia was described as tall and awkward, a tomboy who enjoyed outdoor activities like fishing and hunting with her father. She had a great sense of humor and loved to make people laugh. Now, she was blessed and cursed with a tall frame standing at six foot two inches tall and a booming voice that rang out with infectious joy whenever she spoke about things about which she was especially passionate. Julia was educated at Smith College of Massachusetts and after college, she worked in advertising in New York City in the 1940s. And if you've ever seen the TV show Mad Men, you can probably guess at what life was like for a tall, loud, and highly intelligent woman like Julia Child. She joined the Office of Strategic Services, and this is a precursor to the CIA, during World War II in 1942 because she wanted to contribute to the war effort, but she was rejected by the Women's Army Corps because of her height. She first served with the OSS Registry in Washington, D.C., but then was later sent to Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, where she worked as a typist for the Secret Intelligence Division and as a research assistant. 
Apparently, her assignments included researching and developing a recipe for shark repellent and also a recipe for a flourless chocolate cake to boost soldier morale. No word on whether the shark repellent and the chocolate cake shared ingredients, but <laughs> I guess how, you have to be incredibly organized, right? To be able to do recipes <laughs> for these two things without, you know, messing something up along the way. Right. I just, I just love that, you know, shark repellent by Julia Child. I can actually picture that in the store. But it was here that Julia met her future husband and utter love of her life, Paul mm-hmm. Child, who was also working for OSS. They were both passionate about food and cooking, and their shared love for gastronomy sparked a romance. And they got married in 1946, and their life experiences in Paris, Marseille, and Provence are chronicled in her autobiography, My Life in France, co-written with her nephew, Alex Prudhomme. I highly recommend this book. It gives you such a great insight into Julia's life, into her marriage with Paul, into the adventures they had and her trials and tribulations trying to figure out what she wanted to do and who she wanted to be. Brilliant book. I totally agree. And I I second that emotion. It is a beautiful book. And you get to understand, like Kim said, their relationship and his support of her, which is just... It's so heartwarming. It is. They were true partners, collaborators, spouses. They had a beautiful life and a beautiful marriage together. And Mm -hmm. their goals, I consider them couple goals because they did so much work together and he did utterly support her and everything she did from here on out. Totally. She and Paul and Ina and Jeffrey. Yeah, exactly. Yep. 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 So when Julia and Paul arrived in France in 1948, she spoke no French, but her innate curiosity and passion for good food led her into the market stalls for the best ingredients, to classes at Le Cordon Bleu, and to nurture deep, enduring friendships with other chefs, restaurateurs, sommeliers, and food purveyors. She fell in love with French cooking and enrolled at the famous Le Cordon Bleu cooking school, as the only woman in her class where she had to work twice as hard to prove herself, but she did it with great gusto. And while she was at the Cordon Bleu, Julia met Simone Beck, also known as Simca, in 1949. And Simone Beck herself was a French chef with a great deal of knowledge and expertise in French cuisine. And the two of them, along with another friend, Louisette Bertol, worked together to create a cookbook that could introduce classic French cuisine to an American audience. Now, that endeavor took them over 10 years to accomplish, but whoa, they managed to pull something off that was really special. That cookbook that Julia, Simone, and Louisette eventually created was Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which was ultimately published in 1961 by Alfred A. Knopf. The A is important, I think. I don't know why, but I think it's because he put it in there. That's the guy's name. The book was a huge success for the publisher and quickly became a bestseller, thanks in large part to Julia's engaging and humorous writing style. The book was revolutionary in its approach, breaking down complex French dishes into manageable steps that even novice cooks could follow. Mastering debuted the same year as French chef René Verdon arrived to cook in the Kennedy White House, where he was known for creating elegant dishes with fresh ingredients and intricate techniques. Interest in French cuisine soared, and it's really easy to imagine how this perfect storm was created. An elegant first lady enjoying croissant and dishes like souffle a la Jackie Kennedy, 
and this easily available popular book that promised that anyone could create gourmet French meals like beef bourguignon at home. One of the things that I deeply love about this book is its cheeky language, as you can hear in this passage from the foreword. Quote, This is a book for the servantless American cook who can be unconcerned with budgets, waistlines, time schedules, children's meals, the parent-chauffeur-den-mother syndrome, or anything else which might interfere with the enjoyment of producing something wonderful to eat. End quote. Right off the bat, you know that this will be worth the calories. Regarding the recipes, I can't help but contrast my experience reading them with my experience working with the Women's Suffrage Cookbook. This book, as in mastering, has illustrations of kitchen equipment as well as definitions, measures, temperatures, notes on ingredients, and cutting techniques. The recipes are organized in a progression following the idea of courses, and thankfully there is a table of contents and an index for additional reference. And the tone and language of the recipes is also a clear departure from Miss Edna Lewis's A Taste of Country Cooking. Here is a pure and true instruction from one more knowledgeable and experienced than you, and I'm talking about mastering here. The authors are leaving nothing to chance that a reader might misinterpret or feel confused about a direction to a point that directions to poach an egg, for example, spans two pages. I love that you brought this up, and I love that you compared it both to Woman's Suffrage Cookbook and to The Taste of Country Cooking by Edna Lewis, because I think that the format of this cookbook is so different from anything else that I've ever seen. I've never seen a cookbook that is laid out this way, but it speaks to the title of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Like you said, it is broken down in such a way that it is demonstrative of the techniques as well as it literally walks you through every single step of the recipe. There's no question. There is yeah. no question about what happens next and what ingredient is next. Yeah, it's clear that these recipes are written by instructors, by yeah. people who are familiar both being a student, but also teaching techniques. And at this point, especially over the 10 years that took them to really fully prepare this cookbook, they absolutely were teaching classes um, all three of them, I believe, mm -hmm. did. I know Julia did, and I know Simka did as well. So I feel pretty confident in making this an assumption for Louisette too. But they're doing their best to just lay everything out and super clear. And yet it still comes off as a little intimidating. I can't lie. You know, I want to get a good grade in that class, I think is ultimately what that's about. I think that's absolutely true. I also think in our short attention span economy that when you, like you mentioned, to poach an egg spans two pages, you're like, I don't think I can do that because we just want something that is a sentence long and we can achieve it. Yeah. Nellie, I know you're going to be the one cooking from this book. I can't wait for next episode to find out what you cook and how you felt about it. But I do have to say that, you know, comparing this to my experience with the Women's Suffrage Cookbook, where I made the water lily egg recipe meant to be this sort of quick, easy egg recipe that you could serve to unexpected company. I went looking through the egg chapter, which is substantially larger, by the way, than the one in the Women's Suffrage Cookbook, just to see if I could find something comparable. And while I didn't, I did end up reading through the scrambled eggs and thinking, maybe I'm going to try this just to see if I can improve my scrambled egg technique. And they were amazing. They came out really soft, very creamy. And I did start thinking about, wow, I, I want to host a brunch so that I can make this dish. And gosh, what would go well with it? Like it really, something as simple 
as scrambled eggs because it truly was just butter and egg and a little bit of seasoning. You know, it really got me inspired about food and finding it fun. And that is the enduring legacy of this cookbook, right? Because one of Julia's philosophies about learning included an approach to mastering cooking techniques in ways that were both practical and passionate. Her goal, after all, was to demystify the art of French cooking And by eliminating any anxiety and or uncertainty about technique, she thought that she could make the act of cooking accessible to everyone. Her indefatigable energy fueled an obsession with perfecting and self-testing the 524 recipes that appear in the first volume of Mastering multiple times. Because, you know, if she felt like there was maybe even a question about one of the components of technique or ways of putting together a dish, she would rework and rewrite the recipe until she felt like she could reliably get the results that the dish demanded. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of cooking. It's a lot of cooking. That's a lot of testing. It's a lot of testing. I've tried off and on over the years writing a cookbook myself, and I can't even get one recipe finished. <laughs> like, I can't imagine 524 of them. Right. And as you might expect for someone like Julia, who immersed herself in classes She came to believe that the best way to learn how to cook was through hands-on experience, and she emphasized the importance of practice and repetition. I think what I really learned from her here is that when you master techniques, you do unlock a whole new approach to food. Look at the myriad of ways that you can cook a chicken, for example, frying, roasting, boiling, and each time you're going to get a completely different result, roasted chicken, boiled chicken, fried chicken, right? Almost like they're just completely different foods. Now, these are really broad strokes on technique, of course, but what a loss to family life I would have had if roasted chicken wasn't part of it. If all my mom ever served for a family meal on Sundays was boiled chicken, I would have grown up hating food. And what a nightmare that would have been. (laughs) And that's part of the reason why I want to really learn the mother sauces, When you understand ratios and flavor profiles, the ingredients become just an amazingly fun variable. And Julia acknowledged the fact that recipes were less dependent upon the ingredients that you could get because how often are we all really going to be able to find the exact thing grown in that valley and the thinking of the French red label type foods, right? We're not going to be able to really source the same things that they have in France. Everything's just different. Right. But... When we understand the technique of how the dish is supposed to be prepared, we get a little bit closer to the truth of it, the accuracy of it. I'm not going to say authenticity because, you know, I don't believe in that. But like you get a bit closer to tasting a dish the way that Julia would have made it and Julia making a dish that would have tasted close to the way that, you know, a wise old French chef would have made it. You just start to pass along the idea of the food when you work with the technique. Because it's really not that you must do everything from scratch or else it's not authentic. Although Julia may have been a little obsessive, she wasn't a full-blown purist. Her kitchen contained a variety of tools and gadgets collected from her 1940s cooking school days all the way through the 1990s. Whatever it took to get the job done and not perfect, just well, had a place in her kitchen. And her kitchen is immortalized in the National Museum of American History, where it contains both a soapstone mortar and pestle that Julia and Paul found at a Paris flea market in 1948, as well as a KitchenAid food processor, something that she called the single most important invention since the electric mixer. 
One of the things I truly admire about her approach is that she encouraged her audience to keep trying, even if their attempts were failures, and to learn from their mistakes. And I love this quote from Mastering that I presume comes directly from Julia. Quote, cooking is not a particularly difficult art, and the more you cook and learn about cooking, the more sense it makes. But like any art, it requires practice and experience. The most important ingredient you can bring to it is love of cooking for its own sake, end quote. Mm. I love that. And I also love the fact that she really did talk about the failures. She talked about it on her show on PBS, and she literally had failures. She brushed them off and just kept going. And it made you feel like, wow, if this woman who is literally on TV drops a chicken on the floor and can pick it up and continue on, then I certainly have the ability to do the same. Absolutely, I'm agreeing with you and I'm thinking out loud where I believe that was so important to have at that moment. And I, it's something that I'm finding lacking in our food now. Mm-hmm. We are so obsessed with the Instagram shot, with, you know, making it look good on social, having these things that look beautiful Um, as if they were never flawed to begin with, to the point where the only produce you see in the grocery store is this pristine, perfect, that there's even a sub-market now for imperfect food for the stuff that doesn't look so pretty. It's still an apple. It's still a banana. It's still all the things that are what the ingredient, even with its imperfections, could be even better tasting. But because it's not picture perfect, it doesn't go on the shelf. We could stand to remember that it's okay to make mistakes, that it's okay to have a flaw or a blemish. It's okay to be six foot two, and I'm not calling that a fault. It's okay to be something other than what you think the normal should be and that you're actually going to get along just fine anyway. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So I cannot wait in two weeks to see what you do with this cookbook, Lay. I'm definitely going to keep looking through this. I have a hand-me-down copy that I can't exactly place. It's not a first edition. I believe it's it's definitely one of maybe it's 10th reprint of the first edition. But I, there's a lot to unpack here, especially in the mother sauces. And so I think I'm going to be having some fun with that. I am super excited about the recipe that I chose from this. I have literally for the past three nights read through and read through. (laughs) It is (laughs) when we talk about this being such a different format, it literally is almost a textbook in the way that it's presented. And I personally, and we talked about this before we started recording, I want Julia to be proud Of what I have done based upon what she's teaching me. What I have chosen is a classic dish. It has a lot of steps, but I am very, very excited to literally dedicate a day and intentionally make this recipe to share with you guys in the next episode. Can't wait. Be sure you tune in and maybe have a snack beforehand because I'm pretty sure you're going to be starving by the end of the episode. I'm pretty sure you will too. (laughs) Like I always am. (laughs) (laughs) For more episodes, listen to more (laughs) as we eat podcast episodes. It's that simple. It's really that simple. Really? It truly is is that that simple. simple. We have like almost 60 of them for you to listen to. So, you know, just pick one at random. Play, play as we eat roulette. It's fun. Trust me. I've tried it. Oh, yeah. I've tried it. 
For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. We really love sharing these things with you. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes away from reading this amazing cookbook and rate the podcast on Apple Podcast, Podchaser, or Spotify, we would be so appreciative. It really helps us build an amazing food enthusiast community. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be really honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. Subscribers get neat perks like early access to episodes, exclusive content, and more. We're sure you'll find a subscription that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a little bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion. Ba-da-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba, ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba.